0: All throughout Advent, we have been receiving letters uh, from, from leaders of the early church. You know, the Christmas season is a time where our mailboxes come alive. And so, one last time. Do you guys think we should check the mail today? All right, let's, let's see what's in here. Ah! We have received something after all. Wow. Oh, my. Okay, looks like it's from John, the third letter that he's written recently. You guys heard the second one last week. Here's what he has to say. From the elder to Gaius, my dear brother, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health, just as it is well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, just as you are living according to the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are living according to the truth. Dear friend, you demonstrate faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers, even though they're strangers. They have testified to our love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone forth on behalf of of the name, accepting nothing from the pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we become co-workers in cooperation with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not acknowledge us. Therefore, if I come, I will call attention to the deeds he is doing, the bringing of unjustified charges against us with evil words, and not being content with that, he not only refuses to welcome the brothers himself, but hinders the people who want to do so and throws them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is bad, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does what is bad has not seen God. Demetrius has been testified to by all, even by the truth itself. We also testify to him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have many things to write to you, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you right away, and we will speak face to face. Peace be with you. The friends here greet you. Greet the friends there by name. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us by your Spirit about your Word? Lord, thank you that you have given us the privilege to read other people's mail and to be encouraged by it, in fact, to see you and know you through it. Do your work today that we would see you and know you and live in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May 24th, 1844 is a turning point in history. On that day, Samuel Morse sent the first ever telegraph. From Washington, D.C. to Baltimore. And that telegraph contained four simple words What hath God wrought? Do you know that's the first telegraph ever sent? Wow, that was a, truly a revolution of epic proportions. Until that moment, news, communication, could only travel as fast as the people carrying it. But after that moment, news traveled much faster than people. In fact, today, every day, 2.5 quintillion bytes of data are produced and added to the internet every single day. Now, you can see that's a lot of zeros. That's uh, a quadrillion is a thousand trillion, and a quintillion is a thousand quadrillion. I know you knew that, but I'll just remind you of that. Uh, to put it in perspective, a long sermon of mine in digital format is about 500,000 bytes, which means every day, five quadrillion of my sermons get added to the Internet. <laughs> As in 177 years, we have come a long ways. My goodness. Wow, that's a long way from what hath God wrought. Jesus and his first followers had no internet. They had no telegraphs. Their news traveled at the speed, really, of a person walking. That's three or four miles per hour. That's how fast the news traveled. And that was Jesus's design. If you read the stories in the gospel, he regularly sends his guys ahead of him. Go to the towns that we're headed to. Let them know effectively that I'm coming. The kingdom of heaven has come near. He even told them, don't bring anything with you. Be dependent on the hospitality of strangers in these towns that you're going to. Stay with the first house that'll let you in. Stay there, eat their food. After his death and resurrection, Jesus gave the same assignment to all of his followers. Go, you know, go on foot and spread the news. Be dependent on strangers. Visit one town, share the news, make disciples, send some of them out to do the same and go on to the next town. This was actually really effective there's a sociologist, Rodney, Star- Roddy- Rodney Stark. He wrote a, a book about the rise of Christianity, and he, based on the data, he says the message was growing so fast, and so many people were becoming convinced about it up to the up until the fourth century, that if it continued at the same pace to the end of the fourth century, the entire empire, like the entire known world to those folks, would have been converted. There were some significant historical changes. We won't go into those at this point. It's not bad for a message that moves at three miles per hour, is it? In fact, Christians today may want to consider all the ways we try to flood the world with our data, but that's a sermon for another time. To get to the sermon today, we need to see that the life of early believers involved a constant flow of teachers who would come carrying letters sometimes. In fact, often those letters were letters of recommendation. And I think that's what this is. Did you notice there's, a, there's three guys mentioned? It's written to Gaius, then it rebukes Diotrephes. And at the very end, it talks about this guy Demetrius. Hey, Demetrius is a good guy. The, we all testify to him. The truth itself testifies to him. You know, that's probably the guy holding the letter this stranger shows up and says, hey, this is from John. <laughs> Read it. And then John says, hey, trust the guy who just handed you the letter. And now that's how the news spread. You have Paul and Peter and John and James and, and, and John, the guy who wrote Revelation, and on and on. They're, they're itinerant preachers. They go from town to town, sometimes with letters of recommendation, sometimes not. And they spread the news and it was good. And when news is spreading so fast... This doesn't happen anymore, but when news is spreading so fast, it gets distorted sometimes. (laughs) I know, I know, I know, it doesn't happen anymore, but, but, I mean, okay, why? Why did it get distorted? Well, people are involved. Of course, of course. If someone gives you shocking news and says, pass this along, the next person that you tell the shocking news to, you're going to try to tell it in a way that's palatable for them. It, you know, it, like, how can I put this in, in my words or in ways that you'll understand? And when that happens, things things slowly start to adjust and shift. And within a hundred years, within the first few decades, there were many different sort of rumors about Jesus that were spreading as fast as the truth about Jesus. Over the last couple of weeks, we've read several other short letters that were passed along. In fact, the last two that we read, Jude and Second John, were nearly the opposite of this letter. They were saying, hey, if somebody is teaching you that Jesus gives you permission to do whatever you want, don't let them in. Or, or if, you know, if somebody is teaching that Jesus wasn't really a human, he just looked human, don't let them in. It's telling them to be inhospitable to those folks. And now, same author in Third John, he says, hey, I know it's risky, but keep welcoming people into your home. Keep bringing them in. Gosh, with so many distorted messages, you could see how communities would be tempted to just stop welcoming people, right? You could see how they'd say, hey, we got it. We got the news about Jesus. No more traveling preachers, no more strangers knocking at the door wanting to teach us. And it seems that's exactly what Diotrephes thought. Like many pastors, including the one you're listening to, Diotrephes liked to be in charge. He liked to be first among them. He was skeptical of outsiders, probably with good reason. He was no longer willing to welcome them. And in fact, he thought they were such a risk that he was punishing anyone in the church who welcomed them into their house. That's that's pretty different than be hospitable to strangers. Even though Diotrephes was a follower of Christ and a church leader, he was operating in what I want to call the old economy. All month, we've been looking at the ways of, things have changed because Jesus came. And because Jesus came, we have a new economy. So what is this old economy? In the old economy, resources are limited, and the way to have the most power in any way is to have the most resources. That's the norm that we all live with right now. And when I say this is old, I mean very old. This economy starts on page three of the Bible. We've studied this story. Recently when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit they treated the resources of life that were available to them as a competition with God. If we eat this we can become equal with God. Get the resources for ourselves and win the competition. When they did that they introduced a way of thinking about life that dominates our nearly our every thought today. Show me a precious limited resource anywhere in this world, and I will show you people hoarding it. I will show you greed. I will show you abuse, and often I will show you war. This is what we do. In that way of thinking, strangers, especially strangers who knock on your door when you're not expecting them, and that ask for things, they ask for food, money, lodging, and a platform to share a message are generally a threat. Diotrephes was like, enough is enough. We get it. We know about Jesus. He, and, and he was done with any outsiders, even the elder, who's John. You know, Jesus is beloved, his dear friend. Is Diotrephes so strange? Just the other day, I was meeting with someone in a coffee shop. We were discussing theology and ethics, and a guy neither of us knew jumped into our conversation. He was a seminary student, so he knew all the answers to our questions. And he actually had some really helpful thoughts. And my first reaction wasn't gratitude for his jumping into our conversation. It was like, dude, (laughs) like, A, B conversation here. What if, what if he misled my friend? What if, what if my friend thought this guy had better ideas than I did? That's the old economy. As my kids are getting older, I'm starting to see a pattern rise in them. It's not just them. I think it's human. Uh, for example, one will be preparing to play with a friend from school. Uh, this is called a play date, and. Um, when, and, and as that one is preparing, another one of the kids will kind of invite themselves in. Can I play with you guys? Can I be a part of this? And it is nearly guaranteed at that moment that the, that the first kid, you know, who it's their friend, will try to shut that down. <laughs> like, no, 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 this is my friend. This is our time together. That's the old economy. If you hang around the Christian world long enough, you're sure to be asked again and again to financially support all sorts of things. Relief efforts, just good causes, mission trips, nonprofits, and every time you show up at the church, we just we have this great way of just passing some type of receptacle for you to drop money into. Part of being a Christian is apparently fielding an almost never-ending stream of requests for your time and your money. And once in a while, maybe more often than you'd like to admit, a request comes your way and you have something deep in your knower that says, yeah, I should be part of this. And at that moment, there will be alarms that go off in other parts of you. If you give, You might not have enough for your own needs. What about your bills, your groceries, retirement, date night? What about college savings? That's the old economy. One day, Jesus' disciples saw this other guy. He wasn't one of them, but he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they came to Jesus and told on him, Jesus, this guy, he's not one of us, and he's he's taking attention away from you. Give us permission to go shut him down. Jesus says, hey, whoever's not against you is with you. Jesus was introducing a new economy. He's come. He looks at his disciples and, and gives what sounds like flippant and dangerous News, like, whoever's not against you is with you. No, 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 no. you got to be clearly with me to be with me. He's constantly shutting competition down, even amongst his guys. The last will be first. The servant of all is the greatest of all. This is a new economy. This is totally different. Sell all you own, give to the poor, and come and follow me. Remember, that old economy started when Adam and Eve viewed well-being as a competition rather than a gift. What was it like before that? Well, the Garden of Eden and its design, it was a place just of receiving and giving and receiving again and giving again and receiving again and giving again. I can tell you, again, just thinking as a dad, looking at my kids, looking at all these kids up here, my, my big dreams for them are not that they will be rich and like well off and not have a care in the world. My big dreams for them when I'm in this mindset, when I'm writing this sermon especially, <clears throat> is that they would live life joyfully, freely sharing and giving all that they have, even to the point of being vulnerable. I want them to love giving I want them to love and humbly receive when things are given to them. And I think that's kind of the image of God in me and in you, parents. That's the new economy. The God who designed that economy invaded this one. We're kind of all around us is the old economy, but he invaded this one. He brought his kingdom complete with the kingdom's economy with him. Um, you know the stories, maybe, but there's this these amazing stories. the The fish and the loaves. This Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's teaching. People are coming from everywhere. There's thousands of people. They've walked a day's journey or more to listen to him. And the disciples are like, Messiah, this these people are hungry, and we're far. You gotta send them home for food. Jesus says, no, 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 you give them something to eat. They're like, uh, that like, you know, our little groups, bank accounts would be depleted if we did that. No, can't, can't do it. Well, what do you have? What do you have? They had enough fish and bread for maybe one family. Jesus is unfazed and he asks for it. He receives it. He gives thanks for it, and then he gives it back to them. As far as they know, nothing has changed. And he says, yeah, give it out. They give it out. Everyone has their fill, thousands of people, and there's more left over than what they started with. That's that's bananas and fish and loaves. That's a lot. (laughs) Guys, this is a glimpse at the new economy we receive, and we give. This is what we do. The new economy of Jesus is so risky with its generosity, it almost seems heretical. Jesus, as he's talking about his people going out, spreading the news, he, he's like practically offering salvation to anyone who welcomes people into their homes. No, less than welcoming. He says, anyone who gives a cup of cool water to one of my little ones will not lose his reward. There's there's something new happening here. If it's not heretical, it sometimes seems just foolish. Give to everyone who asks you. And do not ask for your possessions back from the person who takes them away. That's a tough way to live, Jesus. I won't deny that this is complicated. It's really complicated. Third John may be about risky generosity and welcome. That's what he tells Gaius to do. Keep welcoming them to your house. Send them away with support when it's time for them to move on. But 2 John and Jude are like saying the opposite. But if they're teaching such and such, kick them out with no support. The church in the book of Acts starts with this idea that we pray every week. The church is all together. It's growing. And they're sharing their possessions, and there's no one in need among them. Isn't that amazing? That's chapter 3. By chapter 6, there's a group of people complaining, we're not getting as much food as them. By the time Paul's writing his letters, he writes a letter to his apprentice, Timothy, and he says, Timothy, like, here's the criteria by which someone can be on the list to receive from the community, because other people are taking advantage of it. It's complicated. I get it. Churches ask their people to give, you know, a a rule of thumb, 10% of their income to support the church. And then every single church, including this one, makes questionable decisions with that money that you give. I mean, you financial people, you'd look at our stuff and like, okay. Um, And we have really wise financial people helping us with that, by the way, I should add that. And, you know, for you, Perhaps the payroll seems too high or too low. Perhaps a church isn't supporting enough missions or feeding the hungry in a way that you think is right. Perhaps they have huge debts. We want to know that the people we're giving to, whether a church, a ministry, or the person on the street flying a sign, is going to use it wisely, don't we? That helps us feel good. What, what's this about? Well, here's the reality. The new economy has not yet fully replaced the old one. It's like a small plant that's growing in the garden, and it's growing bigger and bigger, but all the other plants are still there. Because Jesus has come, the two coexist, and believers have to interact with both. Some throughout history have tried to just be in the new economy. Francis of Assisi is a great example. He wouldn't even touch money, wouldn't touch it. And he died young of malnutrition and exposure. That's the reality. M- most continue to operate in the world's marketplace. We have to work, buy, sell, invest, borrow, save, compete, and worry about all of it. That makes sense to us. It's like the laws of physics. This is the world that we live in. Jesus' new economy seems more like a miracle, rare, and and we're not sure we're, we'll ever see it again. But Jesus is inviting us to live in that new economy within the old one, to practice it, to, to let the new one grow and spread through us. As we place our trust entirely in him, we stop being threatened by, well, different teachings about Jesus, by opposing viewpoints, by tough questions, by seminary students jumping into our conversations. We stop being too proud to receive gifts, and support when we're in need. Even as we give freely, we make ourselves vulnerable to receive again. We start seeing the world through mystical eyes. The people and needs that cross our paths are opportunities to see God do something amazing. Even false teachers lead us to refine our own views about the truth. It's vulnerable to put yourself in position to receive something. Who likes receiving gifts? I mean, sometimes it's hard to receive gifts, right? Especially when you feel like it's something you could have done for yourself. Oh, man. That's the life of faith that we're called to live in the midst of a faithless world. John tells Gaius to support these traveling teachers and, and, and then when he does that, it makes him a co-worker with the truth on behalf of the name. The new economy grows as we participate in it. When we, when we are in that flow, receiving and giving, we're part of this global movement. John's motivation is the word, the name is going out. And you guys, that's the best investment that we could possibly make. And there's all sorts of ways to make it. I think globally, the local churches are the single greatest way the message goes forth. That's how we get to become co-workers in the truth. That's how we participate in this new economy. I have a friend. Uh, he's in his early seventies. He was a successful businessman. He retired early. Became a minister. And he served his church for 20 20 years before he retired, pro bono. One time he showed me a list. He wasn't, the context, he wasn't bragging. We were talking about giving. He showed me a list of all the missionaries he's been able to support over the years. And it was a lot. And he supported them for a long time. He sees every new person he meets as a new opportunity to see God do something amazing. He makes a connection, he learns their story, he shares Christ, he receives a blessing from them. He gives freely and joyfully. He loves to introduce me to people from all over the world who are doing amazing things. It's, he's a great friend to have. He's living in the new economy in the midst of this one. And you guys, it doesn't always work out so richly like that. Some live in the new economy in a way that creates permanent vulnerability and that's, some of, that's the call of Jesus. Many leave their safety nets in obedience to Christ, like missionaries, totally dependent on support, living on very little. I have another friend in his 70s. He's lived on next to nothing for most of his life. He was an immigrant many years ago to the U.S. And yet on many occasions, when he heard I, I was in there with him, when he heard about the need of someone else in the body of Christ. And I watched him find ways to secretly give them money, usually the money he needed to pay his bills that month. And he did this over and over again. Time and again, if you talk to people who've lived like that, whether they're living in luxury or in vulnerability, They will tell you that they would do it all again in a heartbeat because they've seen God's hand in ways they never would have in the safety of their old lives. They've seen the loaves and fish in a thousand different ways. John tells Gaius that when he welcomes brothers, even those who are strangers, he becomes a co-worker in cooperation with the truth. As we live in this new economy, we share in the amazing miraculous work of God in the world. In other words, we become part of it. It's ours. We receive and we give. This is a good thing to hear before Christmas. We receive and we give. Why? Because the very center of this new economy, the precious resource that we pass is Jesus himself. And he has freely given himself to all of us. Even when we're twisted up with our fear and greed, he gives to those he doesn't expect to get anything back from. Like you. Like me. Like the guys who were sitting around the table with him the night of the Last Supper. I mean, look look around the table. They're going to be terrified abandoning him. One of them's already got a plan to betray him and he's giving himself to them. That's the start. That's, that's the tiny snowball starting, and it's become an avalanche. What a joy to be part of, and this is, this is true to the numbers, the single most generous group of people in the history of the world. Did you know that? The body of Christ globally has given more than any country history. How cool. So friends, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, take this, you know, receive and eat. This is my body given for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this, all of you. Drink it. Receive first. And when we freely received, find the joy and the thrill to freely give. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you. That's our whole prayer, is thank you, because you are fully a giver. Anything we, anything we give back to you, anything we offer to you, you already gave it to us. Hallelujah. Lord, I, I pray that you would increase my brothers and sisters' joy this week, as we give and as we receive as we face needs and people come alongside us, and as we get to come alongside people with need. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen.